praise the Lord. If you're a guest with us this morning, we want to thank you for being here. And if you haven't uh, filled out a card yet that says uh, welcome on the front of it, it's right there in the seat pocket ahead of you. Would you do that and turn one of those, turn that into one of our ushers? We would appreciate that this morning. I, has, I started a series of messages um, last week uh, titled Blessed. And it's, it's, a, it's a series out of the, out of the Beatitudes, and it's not out of, it is the Beatitudes. And uh, we started this series looking at a new definition of happiness. And the reason I title it a new definition is because the world really has kind of surreptitiously taken that word happy and changed it. Jesus gives us the definition. He gives us the definition of what happiness really is, what it really represents. And we find that in the Beatitudes. And it's important that we understand what that means. I think it's extremely important to understand it. In, in our study, we have found that that word blessed comes from a rather interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word makarios. Say that word with me, makarios. Say, say it a little louder, makarios. That sounds great. You sound so educated this morning. Makarios. It simply means blessed. It means, more aptly, happy. Happy. That, that's not a bad word. I know that there's, a, there's a, a teaching that wants to make us feel somewhat unspiritual when we use the term happy. But when I come back to the original language, I really see that God indeed wants us to be happy. As we shared last week, God's a happy God. He's not up there as a wrath-filled God waiting for us to just blow it, nail us with a lightning bolt. That's just not the way God is. He is a happy God. And the reason I say that is this. He isn't just happy. He, ha- he is happy. What I mean by that is he, he doesn't just possess it. That's who he is. He delights. I, I read in the Bible where it says that he looks at us. He wants to sing about us. He gets excited enough, I think he could even dance about us. Happy is, a, is not a bad word. It's not a sin to be happy. Can you say amen? amen. Just, just in case some might have that idea. <laughs> There's a, a countering word that is also translated happy in in the Greek, it's the word eulogios, which means literally happy, but it's derived from external dynamics. Makarios is a happiness that is uh, derived by an inward dynamic. They're, they're two separate words, two separate dynamics, two separate uh, means by which happiness would come. Uh, I get a brand new car, and when I first get it, and it smells so nice inside, and and it just, the suspension is so cool, I'm happy until the first payment comes due. <laughs> Hello? But, and, th- and that's this, this word eulogious. It means that it's derived from something externally. But the happiness that Jesus is speaking about, this blessed life, this blessing that he brings, comes because we have Christ who is happiness abiding in us. And when he's in us, we have the happiness exuding from us, out of us, because of who's in us. Amen? Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that make sense to you? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a rather intriguing word because it's in the present active tense. Theirs is. It's, it's not just waiting for it someday. It's now. Theirs is the presence or the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit immediately begin to partake in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's nice, Pastor, but what is this poor in spirit all about? It's a cryptic word. Does that make sense to you? It, we look at these words and sometimes we're going, poor in spirit, what does that really mean? What does that, how does that affect my life? How do I, how do I approach this whole thing if I'm going to be happy and poor in spirit? I don't comprehend that and our world really doesn't comprehend it. Now, let, let me share something with you about the Beatitudes before we kind of unpack this passage this morning. Jesus isn't just wishing people to be poor in spirit or to be happy. He, he's not just hoping that the poor in spirit will be happy. He's making a divine proclamation. He's declaring that the poor in spirit are happy, will be happy, and will continue to be happy. This isn't just a wish list that he has. It's, it's the opposite of another word, wakhi, in the Greek means something completely different than this makarios word meaning happy. That word wahi means literally woe, or, or it's, it's translated in, in a sense of, of uh, a foreboding or doom or cursed. And we don't want that. Hello? Anybody here want that? We'll pray for you. Uh, it, it literally means to be cursed or doomed. If it, it wasn't a wish that, that Jesus was stating. If you go back to, to Matthew chapter 23, I think it is, uh, eight times he uses that word woe. And it isn't that he was wanting them to be that. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe. He's saying the way you're living creates something that's cursed. Your living is doomed. I don't know about you, but I don't want those words spoken over me. And so when he's saying that, it wasn't that he was hoping that for them or trying to put that upon them. Their life was doomed because of the way they were living, because of what they were doing, because of the attitude of their own heart. So when we look at this passage out of Beatitudes where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. He's simply saying, this is a fact you can take to the bank. So why does Jesus begin this whole series, this whole sermon with this passage, the poor in spirit? I think the reason is, first of all, it, we're in a beginning, it's a journey. And we're going to look at this this morning and we're going to find that this is the hinge point for everything that follows. If you can't uh, if we don't come to this place of poverty of spirit, poverty of spirit, what that simply means is this. I have to come to a place in my life where I recognize that in me there is nothing in my account that will ever satisfy my God in heaven. Is that a revelation? There's nothing in my account that will ever appease God because of my goodness, 
my good works, my efforts, they won't do it. You see, the word says, be perfect even as I am perfect. How many of you know right there that we, that just kind of check your name off the list? It's almost seemingly hopeless when we think in that term. The concept that Jesus is speaking about is an internal attitude. It's an attitude of absolute dependence on him. It's an attitude of understanding that I will never in my ability ever, ever have what it takes to make it from here to heaven. I have to totally depend on what Jesus Christ did on that cross. I have to totally depend on the word of God that declares what I can find in him. I have to be able to admit that I'm totally bankrupt in my own spiritual walk in myself to be able to in any way meet up with God. I hear it all the time that we're we're to die to ourself. Die to self. Have you ever heard that word? And there's, there's a truth in that. But in that truth can come a great deal of pride. Well, I'm just dying to myself. Spirit of slap comes on me when I hear people do that because it's almost a sense of arrogance. I'm just, I'm just living under Jesus. But when they do that, they're measuring themselves to you in the sense of saying, I'm living to Jesus and so I'm a little better than where you are. You ever heard people like that? I avoid them like the plague. Because it comes back to a term called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, I think, is the greatest enemy of happiness, the kind of happiness that God wants to bring into our life. Because self-righteousness is based on pride, and pride is the original sin. Somebody would say, well, what about Adam and Eve? Listen to me. The original sin happened in heaven. His name was Lucifer, and pride came into his heart, and that's what created the schism that a third of the angelic beings were literally cast out of heaven into this place we know today. Pride. Pride is the most arrogant sin there is. And when we take on a sense of self-righteousness, it, it, it just stinks in the very presence of God. Uh, it, it's interesting. I, I've had people that, you know, I... I, I I pray more, Pastor. I, I fast. I seek God. Well, that's all wonderful. And I'm, please hear me. I think we should pray, and I think we should fast, and I think we should be in the Bible, and, and, and I truly believe that we should die to self. I really think that's important. But when that comes to a statement of my self-righteousness, it's a noxious odor in the very nostrils of God because God is not pleased with that type of, of an attitude. Self-righteousness says that we are rich, when in absolute truth, we're poor. The Laodicean church in the book of Revelation chapter 3 uh, was called the lukewarm church. You remember, remember that story? What caused, and this was, this was not the world, these were believers. These were born again men and women of God living in that church, and yet they were lukewarm. What caused believers to become lukewarm? Let's look at the passage in Revelation 3.16. It says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the original word in the Greek for spit means spit. He spit him out of their mouth. This was was 
unsavory to God. This, was, this put a, a foul taste in his very presence, this lukewarmness. Verse 17 gives us the reason. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. He's not talking about material, spiritual things here. He's speaking about a spiritual dynamic. He's speaking about their spiritual condition. These people aren't talking about them being rich and and all of this type of things in in a physical way. He's talking about a spiritual thing here. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have needed nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, I don't believe that the Laodicean church was a bunch of naked, blind people walking around. They were real people in a real situation. They weren't necessarily wealthy, but they, they had this arrogance about themselves that they've lived for God and somehow they don't need anything. They've got it put together. Well, I don't know how it works for you, but about the time I think I've put it together, I forget where I put it. What caused them to be this way? It, it's their self-righteousness, this sense of, I have done this. I have done this. It's the ultimate deception. It's the ultimate deception that we need nothing. Without Jesus, friends, you don't have any hope. I'll say amen all by myself. Without Jesus, you have no hope. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, without Jesus, you have no hope. Last week, we talked about The Essenes, we talked about the Zealots and the Sadducees and Pharisees. We talked about how each of those had a a way of approaching happiness. The the Essenes, it was separating, it was getting out. The the Zealots was being against something. The the Sadducees was going ahead, going forward, basically without restraint, just doing what you want. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we will die. The Pharisees was always going back. It It was keeping the law, it was keeping these things. And I think it's kind of the same thing today, only we don't call them Essenes or Zealots or Sadducees or Pharisees. We just have our own little way of doing it. In the Jewish faith, they they have a a book called the Torah. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, it's the book of law. And, And it's a powerful book. But understand that in that book, God says that we are to be perfect. We are to keep all of the law. Well... The rabbis understood that's just not going to happen. And so they wrote another book called the Talmud. The Talmud was basically a means by which you could keep the law. It was basically a way of saying uh, this is how you make it manageable and doable. They, for example, how, how do you keep the Sabbath? And they would give you several things that you could do. You could only walk so far on the Sabbath. If you, go to, if you go to Israel today, on Sabbath, Saturday, you go to a motel or a hotel. <laughs> you walk into that hotel and go to a, 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 an elevator, it won't work on the Sabbath. You have to walk the stairs. That doesn't make sense to me. It's more work to walk than it is to ride. But it's part of their legalism. It's part of their Talmud. This is the way you do that. You can only go so far by walking from your home. 
And so the way they got around that was that they'd take a chair and put it over their head and they'd walk around with the chair because that was part of their home. And so it allowed them to stay within the concepts of the law. You see, it becomes rather foolish when you think about it. It seems to be trifling with things. It's, it's adding so much. But you know what? We can, we can kind of make fun of that, but we have Talmuds in churches we have our own ways of holiness, if you will, in churches. I, I, I'm, I'm amazed. I, I, I've, seen, I've seen them. You know, I'll never forget going to a, a youth camp, and I, I asked uh, these campers, I said, can you tell us the four cardinal doctrines of our church? And you know what it came back? We don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't go to dances. We don't, we don't, we don't. That's not a doctrine. That's a Talmud. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like we don't smoke and we, we, we don't chew and we don't go with girls that do. I mean, that's kind of the Talmud that so many churches have kind of created in their, their idea of, quote, holiness and happiness. Uh, the, I can tell you that the difference between two major denominations I'll tell you a simple way to know who they are. You go into a liquor store, and one will say hi to you, and the other will ignore you. One will park in front of the store, and one will park in the back of the store. Seriously, I'm, tell, I'm telling you the truth. It's somehow keeping a law. I, do, I, I remember when, when I was a boy, we couldn't play cards with playing cards. Anybody here ever have that, that stigma put on you? Well, I found out what the ace of spades was like, and I figured out how to play five-card stud, and I made a lot of money before I got saved with those decks of cards. Now I understand probably why they didn't want me to have those cards. But the bottom line is, is that wasn't a standard. That was a man-made Talmud of a way of approaching or somehow creating this holiness. I, I know churches that, that want to tell, here's Mother's Day, and it's a wonderful day that we celebrate and honor the ladies of our church and the women of our lives. But I know a church, I've known, known of churches that want to tell women how to dress. And, 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 and you know, I, I, it, it's amazing. You've got to wear clothing this way. You can't wear jewelry, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. You can't wear makeup. And I've always had a, the opinion of, the, of how the house needed to be painted, painted. I don't... I don't think that's a problem, but I shouldn't have edited that, please, please. But, but the point of it is this, is that I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, can it be overdone? Of course it can be overdone. I, I, I know a church that women cannot cut their hair, and, and I see these ladies with these little buns. It's called bondage. <laughs> Sorry, that didn't get any better. <laughs> What is that? It's a Talmud. It's, it's this is, we've got to keep the law. We've got to do this. And it's us doing something. Jesus, Jesus freed us from the writ of the law. He freed us from this bondage. That doesn't mean that we have latitude to go out and just sin at will. But he's, he said there are certain things that we just put upon ourselves, or we put on others to somehow make that. 
This is what Jesus is talking about when he's dealing with the church at Laodicea. Self-righteousness. If I do this, if I keep this, if I don't wear this, if I don't go here, somehow I'm self-righteous. I'm righteous before God. No, that, that, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. I, I, I look at, I look at the, uh, uh, the word we have to hold. We have to hold the word in the preeminent place. I was invited to, to speak at a church many years ago, and uh, they had communion, and they have what they call one cup communion. You ever heard of that? One cup communion. Now, I prefer those little ones that we can throw away because I'm not really that excited about swapping spit with people. I'm just telling. It's just not my idea of but back in the day when Jesus had his disciples, they had communion. They had one cup. They, they took of one cup. But this church, because Jesus had one cup, they had one cup for communion. Well, the church grew, and so they had to build a new building, and they had so many people in the church, they had to get two one cups. And then they expanded, and they grew to a point they had six separate sections, so they had to have six one cups. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Just simply by keeping a certain standard or a certain whatever, we're holy, we're righteous. That's what Jesus is speaking about. When he's talking to us about this idea of, of, uh, of hold on a second. There we go, maybe. Don't you just love technology? I don't. <laughs> However, I like air conditioning and heat. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? He starts there because I think he's wanting to give us the understanding, first of all, that, that it's important that the standard that we hold is God, not our own, and not those imposed on us. Secondly, what does it mean? Some actually believe that this concept of poor in spirit means poverty. They've taken vows of poverty. That they're to give everything away, that they're to give everything up, they're, they're not to have, uh, you know, any material wealth. Luke uses the Greek term here for poor that Matthew does, but it means something different in some of the language that would be used later on. If it truly means that we're to be impoverished, then we've got a problem. Because most of America, if not all of America, even our poorest are richer than two-thirds of the world. And if poverty is the sign of righteousness, then why do we help the impoverished? As a matter of fact, if poverty is the means by which we attain God, then maybe we should give up everything and all of our finances. Hello? But that's not what it's saying. It's not using that term. What it's saying is simply this, is it's not dealing particularly with the material as much as it's dealing with the spiritual. The, the word here for poverty that, that he uses is the word toxus. 
And it means spiritual poverty. It means to understand the spiritual poverty that we have within our own lives and our own ability. There's another word that is the word panace, which is a word for poverty. But that's better described as the working poor. Those people that work hard, but they never get ahead. They're always on the cusp. They how many of you know what I'm talking about? Does that, does that relate to many people? We work hard and we, you know, we, it, it's, like, it's like the sign that I saw the other day. It says, uh, the government doesn't like organized crime because they don't want competition. I, I, I think that the concept here of the working poor is that we work hard, but we never get ahead. That's not the word, though, that we see here in this passage. He's speaking here of this spiritual poverty, this poverty of our spirit, our soul, that helps us to understand that we need his help. What this means is this, this word that he uses for poverty, and this helps us to get a definition of what he's meaning, poor in spirit, are people who are ashamed, sitting in the shadows, humiliated by their poverty, physically disabled, blind, wretched, ashamed, ashamed of their appearance, ashamed of their past, with their hands stretched out, sniveling and whimpering and hoping that somebody will have mercy on them or else they die. That's the concept that we see in this passage. And that's where we are spiritually. Spiritually, we're blind, maimed, crippled, cowering, sniveling, cringing, poor, barely sticking our hands out, hoping somebody will come by and show us mercy, and he did. Because he did, we can live. Amen. Can you see that? Amen. September 26, 1966, it was a Wednesday evening. I went to church. I wasn't saved. I didn't know Jesus. I'd been raised in the church, but I had never made a commitment to Jesus. Junior boys class one Sunday, they said, next Sunday we're going to have a baptismal. And Man, that was cool. We got to jump in the tank. That's kind of the whole idea that had with me at that point in my life. I was about nine, ten years old. Everybody got baptized. I got baptized. Didn't have a clue what it meant. Because I had not surrendered my life. I had never purposefully and personally invited Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I just showed up at church. I had perfect attendance pen. How many of you remember back in the day you'd get a perfect attendance pen? I had them from my lapel to my navel. I mean, I went to church every Sunday morning. If I was sick, just suck in, sit in a corner. I went to church. Didn't know Jesus. But I was in church. And I left church. A lot of stuff came into my life. <laughs> On April 13th of that same year, I met a young lady by the name of Sherry Hootman. It changed my life. She influenced me in a very positive way, and her and her mother began to pray for me. And on September 26th of that year, I bowed my heart to Jesus. And I can tell you that the description I just shared with you, poor and wretched and blind and maimed and wretched and sniveling and cowering and feeling ashamed of my life and ashamed of my past, 
All of that hit me that night. And when I reached out my cup to Jesus and he came and he forgave me and saved my life. He saved my life. He literally saved my life. But he redeemed my life. My life had a transformational moment that was that quick. Things changed. Things there were attitudes and habits and, and, and cravings that were gone that night, never to return. Thank you, Jesus. And you know what? I, it, it's, it's, I, it, I feel it right now, the same as I felt it then. I remember a few months later, we, we had a thing. How many of you were in the assemblies? And there was a thing called CAs. Christ ambassadors. We are Christ ambassadors. Some of you aren't familiar with that, but, but the, it, was, it was our youth. And, of course, back then it was 12 to 30. <laughs> we were trying to grow a group, folks. And, and I somehow, in our annual business meeting, they, I became a member of the church, and I wasn't sure how that happened, but all of a sudden I'm voted in as the president of our youth program. I didn't have a clue what that meant. And so I had to give a devotional. And now I'm telling you, I'd take a, I'd take a purposed F rather than give a, a speech in class. That just wasn't going to happen. But something happened, and I felt impressed to share a word. And, and I said some things that were probably a little I shouldn't have said. And, and, but I, I'd gotten saved. And I mean, it was real, and it was transformational. And God had redeemed me, and my life was different I remember going to school the next day and telling all my friends, I got saved last night. They thought I was drunk. I was so excited about what God had done in my life, I wanted it to happen to their life. You all understand what I'm trying to say? What I'm telling you is this, is that I recognized in that moment that there was nothing in my ability, by my effort, that I could ever satisfy God. And I was excited because I knew where I was. I knew I was blind and wretched. I knew that I was a beggar. I knew that there were things in my life that I could never measure. I knew that. And when Jesus came in and forgave me anyway, oh man, talk about happy. Because I knew that I could never, ever satisfy that within my own life. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells us a parable. And see if, if we can understand this a little bit. Verse 9, it says, And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And let me share with you something. Anytime a critic compares themselves with somebody else, it's called self-righteousness. Because what we're doing is we're looking down on others while we're looking up to ourselves. And, and this is what God is trying to help us understand. This is what Jesus was speaking about. We cannot do that. We'll never find true happiness that way. It goes on. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with, with himself. God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. And the, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is poverty of spirit. That is the poor in spirit. That is the one that Jesus is speaking about. It goes on and it would say that the tax collector would go home to his house blessed and happy and fulfilled. Why? Because he was the one that really understood this concept of being poor in spirit. He knew that he, he knew who he was. He knew what he was. But he also knew that Jesus could forgive. He knew that God and only God could forgive. So how do I keep that? How do I keep that attitude of being poor in spirit? Isaiah 6 is the story of King Uzziah. And and let's see if we can find maybe a bit of an answer here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe, <laughs> woe. The Greek word for woe is almost the same translation for the Hebrew. I'm doomed. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He comes into the very presence of God. He sees a holy God. And when he sees himself in the presence of a holy God, he sees himself in that bankrupt position that nothing in himself will ever measure up to the God that he's in the presence of. The Bible says that God took a coal off of the altars and he placed it upon his lips and he called him, he chose him, he made him righteous because God did what only God could do to purge out of him that unrighteousness. Every day we need to be in the presence of God. Hello? Every day. Every day we need to get into his rich presence and sense who he is. There's, there's something about being in his presence. It's humbling and yet it's exhilarating at the same time. When I get into the word and I, I'm in prayer and I, I begin to meditate on who he is and his richness and his vastness and his grandeur, I, I begin to recognize how much he cares and how much he loves. And also at the same time I begin to recognize Oh, Lord, I don't have much to offer you. My righteousness is pretty flimsy. Y'all understand what I'm saying? I can go back and look at all of the good deeds and all of the things that I've done, and they really pay when I really get into his presence because all of a sudden I realize I really don't have much to offer him. 
And on the other side of that, I sense his presence. And it's an exhilaration because I know that he cares about me. This is what Jesus is speaking about. This concept of, of poverty of spirit is recognizing just how much I don't have in comparison to how much he does have. Amen? Let me ask you a couple questions. Is Jesus perfect? Is it possible that the Sermon of the Mount was perfect? Is it, is it even possible that the order, the sequence that he gives us the Sermon on the Mount is perfect? I believe it is. Now, let me give you the reason why I think he starts with the poor in spirit. That's just my own reasoning. But I, but I think it has validity. I think he begins with the poor in spirit because it brings about a mourning in our own life, a mourning of the sense of my sinfulness, my lack, my inability. It breaks me to a point where I can begin to say, oh God, I, I really don't have much. That brings me to a point of meekness that takes away my pride. Blessed are the meek. <laughs> it, that meekness also produces in me a sense of hunger. And as I hunger and thirst, I'm going to be filled. But I'm not going to be just filled with the things of this world. I'm going to be filled with a righteousness that's not mine but his. As a result of that, I, I find the beginnings of being merciful. God was merciful to me, and if he's merciful to me, then I need to be merciful to you. Hello? And if I'm merciful to other people, it, it begins to bring about a purity of heart because I'm not focusing on myself. I'm wanting to share this with others. I'm wanting to encourage others to know the, the one that I serve. It, it, it begins to bring not only a purity of heart, but then I also want to bring peace. I want to bring you to a place where you have peace with God and peace with one another. Not only that, when I'm trying to bring people to God, it also can create a little persecution. Hello? You know, we look at these Beatitudes, and some of them we really want to ignore. Blessed are the persecuted. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I find that a little bit hard. Anybody here besides me? But when we have come to this place of poverty of spirit and we begin to take on these attitudes that Jesus is bringing into our life, as we'll walk through this series, we're going to see these are wonderful things. This idea of poverty of spirit, it's not, it's not cloistering yourself somewhere in a monastery. It's not putting on some kind of a, a weird robe or walking around in poverty. No, it's recognizing simply this, that you don't have it. Jesus does. You need what he has, and he's willing to give it. Hello? Does that make sense? And without it, we're like the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple. We can walk around with smugness, self-righteousness, and all we do is create pain for others, and it's not a very good thing for us. Amen? Would you stand with me this morning? God's a big God, and he's a good God.
Father, I thank you for your word. As we, as we begin to recognize uh, this poverty of spirit, Lord, it's, it's a humbling thing. And I would ask you, Lord, that most of what we're sharing is spoken about introspection. Not keeping laws and regulations and rules. Just simply, Lord, recognize we need you. We need your help. We need your grace. Thank you for the word. Thank you that we can pray. Thank you that we want to live holy and we want to avoid the things of our world. But simply avoiding those don't do one thing about making us more holy or more righteous. Father, would you put that insight into our heart that we simply simply have to depend on you. And when we do, you're always there to satisfy and fulfill that area of our life that we need in Jesus' name. So, Father, I'm asking you right now as we get ready to leave this place, Lord, we do so by asking, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say to me today? What is it that I need to think in terms of? And Lord, how much closer can I come to you? And how can I know your presence and your grace even more? Take away that self-righteousness. Help us, Lord, to be honest about it. And to simply say, Lord, here am I. In the hour of my need, I come to you to fulfill it. In Jesus' name.